The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Putin has made it very clear that he wants to reunite the Soviet Union and that he is not ethically constrained. There is no such thing as risk-free sanctions, but our risk tolerance has to rise in the face of an actual land war in Europe. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top name. There's the size that the economy is not super robust. Pennsylvania has thousands of structurally deficient bridges. The need has been pronounced for a while, and Joe Biden got it done. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. President Biden meets with the new chancellor, but are they on the same page? Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in town at the White House today for critical talks in the Russia-Ukraine standoff. You heard the news conference, and questions remain about Germany's resolve as a NATO ally. We'll have the latest for you with analysis from foreign policy expert Lester Munson, principal at government relations firms, a firm, I should say, BGR. We've also got the panel today in place, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, who we spoke with on Friday ahead of this news conference today. We'll see how the body language and the verbal language hit the panel. Later, we'll look ahead to the midterm elections, an important conversation with Bloomberg national political reporter Mark Niquette as gerrymandering points to an even more polarized Congress. The Biden administration tries to project unity with our allies in the standoff over Ukraine. That has been the job lately, and that was certainly the case today. As the new chancellor of Germany came to town, Olaf Scholz in his first oval meeting as leader of Europe's biggest economy, two held a joint news conference after they met. Major questions, as you heard live on Bloomberg Radio, about Germany's commitment to protecting Ukraine and just how far they might go in terms of sanctions, because much of that commitment centers around the future of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. If you're a Bloomberg user or listener or viewer, you might know a bit more about this than most. Schultz never said it out loud. Nord Stream 2, despite repeated questions from American and German reporters. But President Biden was full-throated. Let me answer the first question first. If Germany, if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. You got that? We will bring an end to it. Definitive. Chancellor Schultz on the same question, speaking through a translator at first, he then chose to speak English for emphasis. You can be sure that there won't be any measures in which we have a differing approach. We will act together, jointly. It's a good idea to say to our American friends, we will be united, we will act together, and we will take all the necessary steps, and all the necessary steps will be done by all of us together. Okay. But he still wouldn't say the name Nord Stream 2. Despite what was said in the Oval Office, we don't know. 
just wasn't coming out in this news conference. President Biden seemed convinced, even at one point answering a question aimed at Chancellor Schultz. You're not mentioning Nord Stream 2 by name. Don't you think if you were to spell this out, you could win back trust as a strong ally here for the U.S.? There's no need to win back trust. He has a complete trust of the United States. Germany is one of our most important allies in the world. There is no doubt about Germany's partnership with the United States. None. And that's how it played out in the East Room. All the while, French President Emmanuel Macron in Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin today, urging Putin to de-escalate with 130,000 Russian troops now said to be on the Ukrainian border. They're still going in that bilateral. The longest news conference in the history of man. And this is where we begin with Lester Munson. He's principal in the international practice at the firm BGR Group, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Back with us on Bloomberg Sound On. Lester, thank you for being here. Did this meeting accomplish what was intended? Did it improve or increase trust in Germany? Joe, it's possible I'm watching a different uh, news conference than you are. I actually think this was uh, Joe Biden at his best, reassuring, saying the right things, being resolute, being fairly clear, as clear as he can be on an important uh, strategic issue. Uh, the, the criticisms of the new German chancellor, uh, notwithstanding, this was, uh, this was a big moment for our president, who I think uh, has demonstrated, despite some mistakes in the past uh, on Afghanistan and some other issues, that, that he's up to the job. Now, that doesn't mean this thing is going to go exactly the way we want, but uh, I was reassured based on his uh, ongoing performance here that he gets it and this is this is one of the reasons people voted for him how about he understands the importance the, of these alliances sure and I, I how about the chancellor though what how did he hit you and and was that a, a conscious decision to not say Nord Stream 2 out loud for a domestic audience what was driving his decisions today I can't tell you uh, why he chose the words he chose to me there was clarity in the alliance with the United States in standing four square with Joe Biden, with the rest of the NATO alliance. Germany may be a special case in the grand scheme of things in the, in the Western defense structure. Uh, we do not want to see a super aggressive Germany, generally speaking. Yeah. They play a different role than other countries. That is fine. That is appropriate. I was I was reassured overall. I think the chancellor did a fine job. I think Joe Biden did a really good job. Look, this could be a, an occasion, and this is why you're here, Lester, uh, where, where we have to be extremely careful in our words. And I'm not trying to project any impression on the way this went. It was noted, though, duly by reporters who were there, that he wasn't saying some of the, the trigger words, beginning with Nord Stream 2, that people wanted to hear. The point is, though, he was definitive enough in his answers to, to satisfy you. I, I like the use of English. That was that was a nice little diplomatic yeah, leap uh, by Scholz. So, uh, you know, he, maybe he demonstrated in other ways that he's where he needs to be on this issue. Mm-hmm. Look, there's no question that the relationships in Europe are more complicated than they used to be. Germany has moved a little bit closer to Russia than some people would like. Uh, Scholz has been under scrutiny. That's fine today showed me that they're in the right place on the big question of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. What does this mean for Schultz's meeting with Putin a week from tomorrow? I'm assuming Vladimir Putin did not love that display today. 
uh, I think it's going to be a, perhaps an awkward meeting, maybe yeah. more awkward than, uh, uh, than we thought a day ago. As I mentioned, uh, Emmanuel Macron is is having his own meeting with Vladimir Putin today, and we've seen this sort of decentralized diplomacy uh, go on over the past couple of weeks. I wonder uh, if you like this uh, this this sort of method that are we're pursuing as allies, and and what's Macron's approach? How is it different than what we're seeing from Germany? They they must have similar, but also different needs here in the way they speak with Vladimir Putin. Well, uh, again, Europe uh, is is not a monolith in the way that perhaps sometimes we Americans think of it. Uh, there are there are differentiations inside the European Union. Mm-hmm. I think in the grand scheme of things, for Vladimir Putin to see that Scholz, that Macron, that Biden are essentially collaborating and coordinating is hugely significant. Yeah. Right? Uh, my view is Putin is putting stress on the Western alliance. And the Western Alliance is responding appropriately and in the right way, in unison, uh, in concert, and working together to push back against what Russia is doing. It's probably not the reaction Putin thought he was going to get. Hmm. Which uh, speaks to the meeting that's happening today in Moscow. I just wonder if the, the are the energy needs the same? Is the relationship similar between uh, France and Russia as what we're seeing between Germany and Russia? Well, let's recall that uh, France uh, has a significant amount of nuclear power. Germany has forsworn nuclear power. That's, that does change the approach of those two countries to energy suppliers like Russia. There is no doubt. Uh, so France has, has more flexibility than Germany does now. Germany could go back and revise its decisions, of course, but that doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it's going to happen right away. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's when we say there's differentiation inside the European Union it is, is because of decisions like that that are still taken at the national level. But also, uh, Macron wants to have a different relationship, right? He's talked about recalibrating, rebuilding that relationship with Vladimir Putin. He's essentially been courting Russia for a few years. Well, the French, the French have always pursued kind of a, an alternative view of what the Western alliance should be doing. This, is, this has been true th- throughout their post-World War II history. It is not unusual. Uh, France, uh, you know, was not thrilled with the way the AUKUS alliance came together because it essentially left them out in the cold. That's the deal between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia designed to kind of deal with some of the threats from China. So they've got some some issues. There's uh, there's no doubt about that. But the Biden administration, I think, is handling that well. It's nice to see this level of cooperation. And if Macron can offer what uh, seems like perhaps a different uh, a different language, if you will, than the others are saying, but still have the same position, that's mm-hmm. a value. It does make you wonder if these are parallel uh, or if one of these leaders might get through to Putin or if they're all speaking off the same page here. Lester, I wondered uh, ahead of the news conference today at the White House if there might be an announcement from the administration, maybe a joint announcement with Germany about alternative energy, about finding whether it's the Qataris or whoever else we're talking about, finding new sources of liquefied natural gas for the Germans, for the Europeans in general, just to take that burden off of them, to to clear the way uh, for talks without energy hanging over Europe. Short of a major announcement today, do you see the U.S. getting that done? You know, one of the things that I wish the Biden administration would do, perhaps, is take a look at its own domestic energy policies. Uh, we're a little 
less open to uh, energy development than we used to be under the last administration. That's mm-hmm. impacting our ability to make a difference on issues like this. We have to go begging to other countries. It would be yeah. better if we could do that ourselves and have a more robust uh, energy offering from the United States of America. It'll be quite an end of this story, I'll tell you. Lester Munson, awfully glad you could be with us. Principal at government relations firm BGR Group and with us to get things started. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The headline on the terminal, Biden envisions halt to Nord Stream 2 if Russia invades Ukraine. Bloomberg White House reporter Jenny Leonard was in the room today, the East Room, and shares the byline, writing the government in Berlin has refused to supply Ukraine with weapons, and the chancellor has stopped short of publicly committing to shut down Nord Stream 2 if Russia attacks. To be clear, Russia continues to say it has no plans to invade, and indeed, the chancellor is still stopping short, even with his full-throated acknowledgement that everything is on the table, we are united. Let's assemble the panel. Speaking of united, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. Jeannie, was that enough today, or, or does Chancellor Schultz have more work to do? You know, my reading of it was there is more work to do. Um, You know, I I thought that his uh, unwillingness to talk openly about Nord Stream 2 does leave it open. So I do think there is more work to do. And I understand that domestically, this is a very, very difficult question for him. And, you know, I wish I had gotten to hear the entire press conference, because to me, a big question that came out that I'm not sure if was addressed or not is what Macron's said to reporters before his meeting with Putin about a Finlandization of Ukraine as one of the models on the table. To me, that is in direct violation of what the United States and NATO has talked yeah. about. So I found that very, very strange. Were you convinced by the chancellor today, Rick? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good ham and egg uh, routine. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Schultz w- couldn't get it out of his mouth. What 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 are you talking about? Nord Stream yeah. 2. Right. Uh, but does uh, that matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. Lester Munson didn't seem to think that mattered at all. Yeah, I agree with Lester. I think, you know, as long as you got Joe Biden backing you up on this one and yeah. says, absolutely. And he did. Uh, if the tanks cross that line, uh, there will be no more Nord Stream 2. And by the way, he has the ability to make that a reality. And so I don't really I think we're like spinning around on the edges. I think the, the message today to Vladimir Putin was very clear. You, you move those troops across the sovereignty line and, and Nord Stream 2 is gone. And so Republicans and Democrats alike on Capitol Hill, I am sure, look at each other going, hey, now we're headed in the right direction. OK, this was the message we wanted to send Putin. Does that mean that we actually see sanctions emerge uh, in the near term? Jeannie, we've been talking about them. For weeks here, I realize that Democrats and Republicans don't see eye to eye, but the Treasury can get to this now. 
they could get to it now. We should see them, and we haven't yet. I'm still hung up on on Rick. I don't know if he said ham and eggs, whatever he said. (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. But, you know, I do think that we should see them. And I have to just respectfully disagree on this point about Nord Stream 2. Yes, the United States can make it happen. But part of what President Biden has been intent on doing is to show a unified NATO on this issue. And what we have seen repeatedly, whether you're talking about France or you're talking about Germany, are what seem to be cracks in that. And so to come out and to not say the basic thing that everybody was waiting to hear about Nord Stream 2 seems to me something that is of a bit of concern in terms of the response if and when Putin goes in. Ham and egg, it's like they're working on something, Rick. A little ham and egg, they, they go together. Hey, daddy made me do it. I mean, he gets to go back to Germany and say, look, I never said I was going to, you know, ban Nord Stream 2. But like, my- Is that the point, though? That was for the audience at home. Don't just oh, don't sure. go there when you're at the White House. It has to be. I mean, Lester was much more respectful to the uh, the the populace in Germany than I'll be. But like, absolutely. <laughs> he gets to go home and said, look, I didn't put this thing on the table. Talk to the right. president of the United States. That guy's out of control. I mean, he's willing to throw down the gauntlet on Nord Stream 2. I mean, of course this was orchestrated. They wouldn't have gone out there without knowing this was going to happen. Yeah. And, and, and Schultz stuck to his line. And we heard something new from Biden, and I agree. This was one of Biden's best press conferences I've ever seen him give. He was clear. He didn't vacillate. He didn't talk about, like, how far and how deep you go into Ukraine. He said mm-hmm. one step across that border and Nord Stream 2 is gone. That's right. And and Jeannie, I know you get a little uncomfortable when Joe Biden starts welcoming the extra questions. It, he stuck to the rules, right? This was a true bilateral. They each got two. There was no fooling around with anyone after, even though reporters were shouting them. I, yeah, he learned his lesson. I think they're, they're holding him back, which makes good sense. Although, again, now I say that and then I had more questions because really this Finlandization, if you or Rick can explain this to me where Macron is coming from, I wanted to hear from Joe Biden yeah. what the United States response is to that, because that seems to me to be a step too far from where NATO is supposed to be on this. Is the French president talking a little too fast and loose here, Rick, or is that diplomacy? Yeah, it's hard to tell. I think that the Finlandization thing is probably a non-starter to everybody else but Finland, yeah. and huh. uh, and and it seems to work for them. So, uh, and the good news is, I do think the president of Finland is actually making some progress with Putin, where he's out there trying to explain uh, why an invasion of Ukraine is bad for the neighborhood. So, um, you know. It, Look, the French, if you can figure out French foreign policy, you're a smarter man than I am. Uh, But I do think it is a show of unity amongst NATO and amongst Mm -hmm. the West that everyone is focused on this. Everyone's working on it today. And uh, and hopefully something positive will come out of that. So this uh, this the the, the multiple lines of conversation are working for you. Macron uh, today, a week from tomorrow, it's going to be Schultz gets his turn. Of course, Biden's already been through this. We have other tiers of diplomats speaking all the while. This is the way it's supposed to work, Jeannie? You know, communication is good. Talking is good. Putin's statement after that there was some feasibility for a foundation of further steps and speaking further. But that said, you know, when you look at the sheer numbers, if you believe what the United States is saying, they are 70 percent ready to go. We are talking potentially millions of refugees, tens of thousands killed. And while the Ukrainian foreign minister over the weekend said that this was apocalyptic predictions and don't believe it, Mm -hmm. the United States is saying it so it gives you pause well hopefully the normandy format uh continues to work here and we'll spend a little more time with Jeannie and rick 
on the fastest hour in politics. We turn domestic, though. Midterms next. Mark Niquette, national political reporter at Bloomberg, is in next. This is Bloomberg. If you're not paying attention to redistricting, the redrawing of congressional districts, it is time to start. As I read on the terminal, there are just 13, I couldn't get over it, 13 toss-up seats out of the 269 districts in redistricting completed so far, according to numbers crunched by the Cook Report. Cook's David Wasserman has been the authority on this if you're looking for someone to follow. Reminding you, we have 435 districts in all, and that's where we start with Mark Niquette, Bloomberg National Political Reporter, sharing the byline on an important story today on the terminal here. Up for grabs, House seats vanish, signaling deeper Congress rifts. Yes, indeed. It sets up an even more polarized Congress next year, as Mark writes. It's great to have you with us, Mark Niquette. Does it also mean that the primaries are essentially the only elections that matter? That's exactly right. The The general election becomes almost irrelevant because the only uh, contest that matters uh, that can determine what happens in the election is the primary, where you have these you know, Republicans and, and Democrats running in very, very safe seats where if they win the primary election, it really doesn't matter who runs against them in the general. And at the rate we're going here, that 13 ends up being 20 or 30 or something by the time we're done? Yeah, Dave uh, Wasserman, as you mentioned, who's kind yeah. of the um, guru on, on all things redistricting, <laughs> he estimates that you know by the time we're done with all of the states redistricting, you know we could have as few as um, you know, 30 to 35 seats that would be considered competitive. I mean, there's different ways of, of you know, determining, you know, what's a competitive seat, different metrics you can use. But yes. um, Wasserman uses sort of, you know, whether the, the district voted within five percentage points of either uh, Trump or Biden in the last election. So, you know, we could have as few as, as 30 uh, competitive seats out of the 435 oh. across the country. Well, I guess it won't be hard to figure out where to be on election night for a lot of reporters out there. Uh, general election night, that is. Uh, just to back up a bit, though, Mark, you point out uh, in this piece that 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 this long, well, old-fashioned in your terms, practice of gerrymandering has turned into a high-tech art form. What what sophisticated computer modeling are they using? Well, it's all, you know, as the technology's increased, the ability to apply computer programs and technology to map drawing has as well. Um, uh, so we have, you know, increasing, uh, increasing levels of complex data mm-hmm. sets that can be used, um, you know, to, to draw these district boundaries as well as map making software. Uh, it's just so precise now, you can, you can pretty much draw the district that captures the exact set of voters that you want. So they take census data and essentially uh, using, using the software you're mentioning, bring this right down to the household. They're drawing lines around specific pockets of voters. Right. And, and the trend we're seeing in this round of redistricting, as we mentioned in the story, is you know, particularly Republicans who control the process in states are drawing what are already safe Republican districts to become even safer, mm-hmm. um, which limits the, the number of competitive districts and you know, real opportunities for uh, Democrats to you know, pick up seats in a, in a state that Republicans control. And, of course, Republicans have, um, you know, an historical, seasonal, however I should put it, advantage here. Democrats have done pretty well protecting themselves, though, correct? Otherwise, we'd have a lot more than 13. 
Right, and and really, you know, gerrymandering uh, is is something that both parties do, and and we're seeing Democrats gerrymander in this this round of redistricting as well, particularly in um, states like uh, Illinois and mm-hmm. uh, New York, and and one of the things that Democrats are doing. Um, is trying to increase the number of districts where they could potentially take pick up a seat. Um, but the, the problem is the math is working against the Democrats. Uh, Democrats control only about um, the, the, the control the process of, of redistricting in only about 75 districts across the uh, across the country. The Republicans control the rest. So there's really just limited opportunities for for yeah. Democrats to gerrymander to their advantage. Which party has been more aggressive with the opportunities they have? I think they both have with, with the ability to, to do it. I mean, sort of a dirty little secret that everybody gerrymanders, and you know that's part of the, the built-in aspect of the process of, of redistricting. You point out the 24th district in Texas changed from one that Joe Biden carried by more than five percentage points in 2020 to one he would have lost by 12 points. Give our listeners a sense of how much change needs to go into a map to, to generate numbers like that. Yeah, it's, it's actually a good example of, of what we're talking about here, because Texas was particularly aggressive in, in gerrymandering to uh, make Republican seats safer uh, at the expense of competitive districts. And this 24th district is around the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And essentially they, they took a, um, a district that had um, you know, a lot of, of black and Latino voters in Dallas County, shifted them into other districts, and added white Republicans from uh, neighboring Tarrant County mm-hmm. uh, to create a new district that would just be you know, completely safe for the Republican incumbent in that case. And this is something they did else the Republicans who control the process did uh, across Texas. And you know, it went from you know, having 10 competitive districts uh, among the, the 36 that Texas had in 2020. They'll have 38 because they picked up two this, in this cycle. Uh, they went from 10 competitive districts down to one. It's incredible. Uh, the full impact of the vote here, as you write, is is not yet set. Uh, as we look at Texas here, the battle over the maps is still playing out in courts and state legislatures. That's the issue, though, correct? This, how long might it take for us to really have finality as we head into Election Day? Well, it'll take a little while yet, but we're up against the clock in, in a lot of these states because you know we have elections coming up. Yeah. And in, in cases, Namely, some Texas. cases, candidates don't even know what districts they're running in yet. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll have to have, you know, finality, uh, heading into the primary season. Um, but again, the, the, the bigger picture, uh, you know, we'll be following is, is what impact does this have on, you know, politics in general and, and the functioning of Congress? I mean, it just, as you said at the top, it just sort of, you know, eliminates the, uh, the need to, you know, run in a competitive general election. You just right. have to, um, you know, win your primary and, and you end right. up having primaries where the candidates they come out being either you know more far left or far yeah. right. And Mark Niquette, I wish we had more time. Up. Read the column on the terminal. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on
on Bloomberg Radio. The governors are speaking, as I read on the Bloomberg, Connecticut, New Jersey, and Delaware, to end mask mandates, at least for schools, and an interesting development here that I want to talk to about the with with the panel we have bloomberg politics contributors Jeannie shanzano and rick davis with us here we heard from phil murphy i mentioned new jersey connecticut delaware phil murphy of new jersey of course a democrat because of the dramatic decline in our COVID numbers effective monday march 7th the statewide school mask mandate will be lifted monday march 7th connecticut meantime is going for february 28th according to ned lamont Delaware lifting its public indoor mask mandate beginning Friday, according to Governor John Carney. The White House press secretary was asked about all this because, well, the CDC still recommends masking. It's always been up to school districts. That's always been our point of view and always been our policy from here. Uh, and our policy from the federal government is to continue to advise everybody to abide by public health guidelines. Do you think it, it signals that perhaps the public believes it's time for a change in the federal guidelines, the CDC's guidelines? Well, we certainly understand and have seen in polling that the public is tired of COVID. We understand that. So are we. So did we just turn a corner here? Did something major just change? Three states like that. Democrats running them. Rick Davis, is the mask mandate going to go away beginning with this move in schools? Well, it certainly appears to be, and that certainly wasn't a full-throated endorsement of the mask mandate by the uh, press secretary to the president of the United States. I I would remind you, too, that that Republican governors have been pushing for this for some time. I mean, Glenn Youngkin's first day of office was to pull out the mask mandate. So what makes it news today is three Democratic governors doing what Republican governors (laughs) have been doing for some time. Uh, That is the man that bit the dog. Uh, So I I do think this could signal a change. Uh, I do think it's still going to be very much hotly debated in local communities all around the country. But there clearly is, I think, the combination of safety and fatigue coming to play with this mask mandate. Yeah, Glenn Youngkin is an interesting, or Virginia itself, an interesting example, Jeannie, because uh, seven school boards said no. And uh, a judge has allowed them to continue with their mask mandates here uh, in the D.C. area in northern Virginia, which is a far cry from the rest of the state. Uh, did you see the, the video, Jeannie, of, of Youngkin at the grocery store the other day? I did. <laughs> he's, he's in Alexandria, Virginia, which is part of Northern Virginia, as I'm speaking. You might know it if you've come to D.C. as a tourist or if you know the area. It's right across uh, the river from here. And uh, and this is, a, you know, a very Democratic sort of liberal place, Alexandria. He's what here's young who in the grocery store to hold an event on grocery taxes. And uh, one of the customers wearing a mask called him out. Governor, where's your mask? Read the room, buddy. Now, I, don't, I mean, that's not how I would address uh, a governor, but his his uh, answer to her was, we're all making decisions today, Jeannie. It, it, it wasn't like the protesters following somebody into a bathroom, but it's probably not what he was preparing for at that moment either. 
It's tough to be a governor. It's tough to be a public official at all. But, you know, I think one of the big differences between some of the Republican governors and the Democratic governors on this issue is the difference between outlawing mask mandates, to your point about these these lawsuits, and allowing the districts and the school boards to make their own decisions. So there is a, I think, two tracks that we're seeing evolve here with some of the Democratic governors like Phil Murphy, who is saying, you know, it's up to the districts, they can decide versus some more of the Republican led states saying that you cannot have a mask mandate if you so choose. And that to me is an enormous difference as you talk about where the power lies to make this decision. As opposed to banning mandates. As opposed to banning mandates. It's a very, it's a very big difference. What do you think about this going to local control, Rick? Is that the answer for the White House? Let your, just let the reins go here. You guys want to do this on the local level, it's up to you. Yeah, I think that uh, this is getting them out of the the box on mass mandates. Uh, I do think that they need to sort of comport with the times. And and I think uh, Press Secretary Saki said just that, right, that people are getting frustrated at this stage. They don't want to have COVID be dominant issue in this election cycle. And so why not, you know, sort of go along with some of the public interest on this. And, and, and local control is always a good thing. Uh, I would remind everybody that Republicans used to push the local control button all the time. And the Democrats were the ones saying, no, the federal government knows oh, best what to do. So this is, a, this is quite a turnaround for this administration. There have been a lot of those lately, as a matter of fact. What does it mean specifically for Glenn Youngkin if he's heading out in, into the public here uh, without a mask, people are yelling at him, does it help his brand or does he need to figure out a better way to straddle uh, these different districts in his state. Rick Davis. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, his brand is sort of confrontation. His brand is, um, you know, maskless. And so yeah. I think I think it's okay because it's otherwise not going to make any news to go to a grocery store and say we're not we're getting rid of the grocery tax. Yeah, right. uh, so uh, so it might have helped him. But like at the end of the day, uh, nobody who's an elected official wants to be out of the mainstream, out of the step of the people. And as the woman said, um, you know, read the room, baby. Uh, you know, this is Alexandria, right? He should have been sensitive to the fact that those people in Alexandria may be a little more left to center and would want to have the governor respect their 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 health concerns. Yeah, well, he's not walking anywhere with a mask on, is he, Jeannie? That that's just that picture's not going to be taken. No, it's not. And you know, I, we should remind everybody that Stacey Abrams got herself into a little bit of hot water regarding a mask. She was photographed in a children's classroom for you know Black History Month without a mask she defended that but they took the picture off of her twitter feed which suggests to rick's point that this is sort of new territory that politicians are having to navigate when to wear one and when to not wear one and so stacy abrams candidate for governor in georgia facing some similar kind of pushback in the other direction pretty amazing there's one more i want to ask you both about charlie pellet has been mentioning it in his newscast throughout this hour as we learned today on the terminal an important tech investor and conservative provocateur. God, wouldn't that be cool if somebody described you as such, Rick? Who's advised Mark Zuckerberg for nearly two decades at Facebook will step down and join the Trump brand. Good evening. I'm Peter Thiel. I build companies and I support people who are building new things. Of course, he was already with the Trump brand. That's Peter Thiel back at the... Republican convention in 2016. But neither is Donald Trump. He is a builder. Yep. And it's time to rebuild America. 
speaking on Trump's behalf at the Republican National Convention. Now, apparently, he will be spending his time investing in politics, not necessarily running for something, but as he said, supporting Blake Masters, J.D. Vance, and others who support the Trump agenda. Jeannie, is this just what the Republican Party needs? You know, it, it seems like we are getting some, you know, new Coke blood in there, if you will. And and I would describe Rick Davis as a political provocateur myself, <laughs> but that's just me. But, it, you know, it does seem like we are seeing him invest. And I am curious about the investment, because on the one hand, we've seen, if you look at polls, Trump stock go down amongst voters. On the other hand, it may suggest that the party is moving beyond Trump, perhaps, in a way that some of what he stood for can be carried on like by others, like some of these candidates that Thiel is investing heavily in. Mm-hmm. This was considered a significant moment when he spoke at the convention in 16. Rick, and it could be, maybe you tell me, is this Donald Trump's only friend in Silicon Valley? Uh, he's got a few, but this is definitely the highest profile friend and yeah. probably the most giving friend. You know, he's placed $10 million each in these two Senate campaigns that he has endorsed. And I don't think that's the last we've heard of him. I mean, I think he's going to be uh, very active out there cultivating a Republican majority in the Senate and the House. Uh, and I don't know whether that is necessarily because he wants to see Donald Trump run again uh, or more that he wants to brandish his own crowd of friends uh, within the Republican Party. When they get together for dinners on these fundraisers that he's hosting, yeah. they're talking about cryptocurrency and robotics and UFOs. This is not the <laughs> typical Republican dinner I've been to. So what does it mean for the future of the party in this cycle? How significant is it, Rick? Well, I think it's significant, certainly in Ohio and uh, in, in Arizona, where he's put an enormous amount mm-hmm. of cash to work in, in campaigns. That, but this is a fundraising story, not one that will change the dialogue or the messaging from the party in this cycle. No, if anything, uh, his messaging has been what we've heard from Donald Trump for the last four years. So uh, there's not a lot of message differentiation at this stage. And there are other Trump people running against these candidates um, and in Arizona, I would say his candidate is second yeah. right now uh, to the attorney general who's running ahead of him. So uh, they've got their work cut out for them to see if they can actually foster some wins here. But I think he sounds like he's going to spend a lot more time trying. And it sounds, Jeannie, in our in our few seconds we have left, like you see this as helping to legitimize Trump in this in this cycle. Yeah, either legitimize Trump or show that Trump is going to outlast Trump, if that makes sense, huh. that this wow. this idea of, of the uh, the issues that he has supported and what he stands for can outlast him. He's not running 2022, obviously, and may not yeah. run 24. Jeannie Shanzano, Rick Davis, our signature panel on Bloomberg Sound On. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.